Before we get started, a quick thank you to Blue Apron for sponsoring Women of the Hour this season. Blue Apron lets noobs like me cook delicious meals at home, and I know this to be true because I've tried it and it worked. Check out this week's menu at blueapron.com women, and you'll get your first three meals free with free shipping. with our first thing song for you and I think you'll love it very, very much. That's me at age eight. And yes, I hosted what I called a cat radio hour. It was my respite from the countless pizza parties and Girl Scout meetings which otherwise filled my days. I'm obviously lying to you. This is clearly the pet project, no pun intended, of a lonely weirdo with the soul of Cloris Leachman. Beetle little kittens lost their mittens and they began to cry. Oh, mother dear, we very fear, much fear that we have lost our mittens. Lost your mittens, you naughty kittens, then you shall have no pie. Meow, meow, meow. No, you shall not have no pie. Meow, meow, meow. Today, a mere 22 years after that recording was made, I'm continuing the Cat Radio Hour tradition. Yes, ladles and gentle beans, today's entire episode is about cats. We're really leaning into our aesthetic over here today. We're going to hear from a woman with a deathly cat allergy who took in her best friend's cat after that friend died. Spoiler alert, the cat owner is my mom, and the cat was my first ever pet, Murray. We'll also hear an amazing theory about cats on screen by writer-director Emma Forrest. My boyfriend Jack Antonoff tells us why he hates Cats the Animal, but loves Cats the Musical. And we have a bunch of monologues by frequent Lenny contributor Kira Garcia, imagining the inner lives of celebrity cats, voiced by some exceptionally talented weirdos. As always, we are brought to you by MailChimp. Over 14 million people use MailChimp to create their email newsletters, and over 70% of those are in fact about cats. That's a real statistic, so don't worry about looking it up. First up, Jessica Lee Williamson recounts the story of a lost cat. Or was it a possum? God's kingdom is full of mysterious creatures, some of whom have bitten me when I chased them drunk through the East Village. Let's hear from Jessica now. In October of 2007, I had just moved to Los Angeles, and I was working as a receptionist at a place that taught middle-aged women how to pole dance for exercise. I was out on a coffee break when I saw a poster that said pet found above the photo of a cat And on my way back to the office, I remember thinking to myself, it would be really funny if the animal on that pet found poster was very clearly not a pet. I think originally I was going to go with a raccoon, but then I overheard somebody learning a sexy lap dance routine to the toady song Possum Kingdom. And that was when it came to me. I wrote Cat Found above two photos of possums that I printed off the internet. The first possum was crouching in a corner and peeking over his shoulder, as if he'd been in the middle of eating some corn on the cob and was startled by an invasive camera lens. 
The second photo was a lot like the first, except the possum in the second photo had red eye and was hissing. Underneath the pictures, I wrote male, no collar, not very friendly. I think he might be scared. Then I wrote not housebroken either, and in an afterthought, drew a sad face next to it. I think my five-year-old niece really captured the irony of the piece when she looked at it and said, that's not a cat. At the bottom of the poster, I asked people to call me if the cat was theirs, and then I wrote down my real phone number. I hung the posters up around my neighborhood. I mostly just wanted to watch my neighbors while they looked at it. I didn't think anyone would actually call, but my phone started to ring almost immediately. The first person to call was my landlord, Nestor. In his voicemail, he comes off as a real know-it-all. He's a real know-it-all in everyday life, too. I got a message from a really nice guy who thought it might be a giant rat. I'm calling about your cat, Bongstein, and uh, I don't think that's a cat. It looks like a possum or, or, or a real bad ass rat. I don't know. I was just calling to see if you were just joking around or if you really hate that thing in your house. Because uh, if you do, you probably just want to get rid of it. You know, let it go or throw it away. But all right, God bless. Take care. And this guy wasn't the only person who thought the animal wasn't a cat or a possum. Hi, I'm calling regarding a sign that I saw by 7-Eleven. It's just cat town, but um, it's a ferret. Um, and it's really cute. It's a ferret. Some people called with good intentions, but quickly devolved into hysterical laughter. Hi, um, I just saw a poster that has... Uh, it says cat found, and um, I'm wondering if you realize that that's smiling possum. <laughs> Within a few days, I started getting voicemail messages from different states and even different countries. Pretty soon, my phone was ringing incessantly for hours on end, and my voicemail box was constantly full. The poster had been copied and was all over the Internet. It was posted on Craigslist, the Huffington Post. It even made it on to Jay Leno. I've gotten thousands of calls throughout the years. I guess you could say those calls capture the whole spectrum of humanity, the kindness, the cruelty, and everything in between. Over time, I've created this idea of the imaginary person who found the possum and took it into her home. Sometimes I picture her trying her best to care for the animal, even with all its hissing and snarling. I imagine her putting a can of Fancy Feast near the possum or watching it go to the bathroom on her living room rug. I even imagine her making the poster, exhausted but hopeful that someone will come to claim the animal. She may not be the smartest person in the world, but she is compassionate, patient, and kind. Nine years later, I still get several calls a week, except now they're mostly from tweens somewhere in the middle of America, calling to tell me that my car will be repossessed on Thursday at noon, or that my anal hemorrhoid cream is ready to be picked up at the pharmacy. I do think about changing my number, but then my mind starts to wander to the other calls, 
The calls where someone was kind or where we shared a moment of laughter. Or the calls from people who, in that moment, were bored and lonely, just like me, with nothing better to do than sit around and talk to a stranger. So I answer the phone, only to hear a 12-year-old making fart noises on the other end of the line. And I'm suddenly reminded that these days, the joke is on me. Thank you to Jessica Lee Williamson for that incredibly amusing and bone-chilling story. Now, here's the first of many monologues you'll hear this episode from the perspective of celebrity cats, some real, some imagined. In the 1970s, a young Melanie Griffith and her mother, Tippi Hedren, did in fact have a pet cat named Neil. Neil was very large, extremely large. In fact, Neil was a fucking lion, and he lived in their house in Los Angeles. Here's Neil, read by actor Chris Abbott. Uh, hey, I'm Neil. <laughs> What's up? Uh, so, I mean, I'm here just to chat about, like, uh, life with Mel and Tippy back in the day. Uh, yeah. So, we were living in the Hollywood Hills. And, you know, first of all, I gotta say that it was just a totally different time, man. I mean, you know, you put out cocaine like, uh, like, uh, cheese and crackers when you had company over, okay? So, like, the fact that I'm a lion... And I was just, like, chilling in this nicely appointed suburban home, eating whole pot roasts and turkeys and what have you. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't weird or anything, you know? So Mel, uh, Mel was a super sweet gal. I mean, just playful and funny and not, like, uptight or square at all. And there's this famous photo of us sleeping together in her bed when she was like 10 or something. And everyone is so freaking horrified that her mom let us do that. But you know what? She was like dating Don Johnson when she was 14. So like that's the guy that you should be worried about. You know what I mean? Whatever. Anyway, Melanie and I had this really special, special bond. And I, I remember visiting her on the set of Working Girl back in like 85 or something. And I was just like, you are capturing the zeitgeist in a huge way, girl. It is your time, girl. And I remember she was kind of less than thrilled about the script. And I was like, no, wait, seriously, it's going to be a classic. And it totally is, like me. <laughs> no, but really, I am. What are you doing later? I got a lace joint back in the hotel. Tippi Hedren went on to deeply regret keeping pet lions in her house and started a foundation and sanctuary, the Shambhala Preserve, to protect exotic big cats. Thank you to Chris for reading that with such gusto. If someone is on their deathbed and they ask you to do something, you say yes, no matter what. That's my mother, Lori Simmons. When I was in my 20s, I had a really close friend named Rosalie, and she was very precious to me because she introduced me to so many things, so many movies, so many books, so many ideas, and we were really good friends. We laughed a lot together. She was acerbic and witty, like a character from a very um, sophisticated romantic comedy from the 1940s, like the wise-cracking a friend who always had the exact right retort for anything. And um, she actually was the only person I knew who had cancer. She had um, Hodgkin's. 
And I didn't know very much about it, but I felt like she might be a little bit more fragile in terms of how long she was going to be on Earth. But I tried not to think about it. But I know that in some way it made me love her more. One day she went to the hospital. She really wasn't feeling well. And I got a phone call and she told me that she had leukemia. So I started visiting her at the hospital every day and we we had a great time because she used to keep a list of people that visited her and she would explain to me which ones were really afraid of her because she had cancer and which ones were really comfortable and would come sit on her bed and which ones would sort of cower by the door. I don't know how it got said, but I know she told me what she wanted me to do with her books, her clothes, and she asked me if I would take her cat, Murray. So Murray was this cat, a female, a rescue. She was gray and silky and beautiful. And every time I went to a dinner party at Rosalie's, I was sneezing and coughing and wheezing and crying and weeping because I was so allergic to this cat. Very sadly, Rosalie died. She was 30 years old. And I suddenly had this cat. And I figured if Murray was 18, that I would have the cat maybe for another year or two, and maybe I could deal with that. Seven years later, Lena is born, and Murray is still alive. And Murray was actually Lena's first word that she ever uttered. We really loved the cat, and the cat was the source of many great stories for the kids. One day, in the middle of a blazing hot summer, Murray was missing. I figured she'd absolutely fallen out of a window. I realized I had to face going down in the elevator and going out to the street and finding Murray's body. I pressed the elevator. The elevator came up to the fourth floor and opened, and out walked Murray. She'd just been hanging in the elevator for about four hours. Murray used to go down to see the neighbors in the elevator. We would push the button. The elevator would come up. Murray would walk in. The elevator would open on the third floor, and Murray would visit with them. And when they were done visiting with her, they would send her back up in the elevator. And we did this daily because they didn't have a cat. I mean, how many New York City cats get to go up and down in an elevator and visit the neighbors? We took really great care of that cat. I think in hindsight, I was absolutely besotted with Murray because Murray was a reminder of my friend who was gone. They both had big personalities did lots of funny things. I mean, there was a lot of Rosalie's presence in that cat, and I think that I found that really comforting. We've had a succession of cats in our house since Murray, but all of our cats ever since have been hairless. So we kind of learned our lesson with Murray, never to go down that road of a, you know, super fluffy, hairy cat again. We did love her, we really did love her. Thank you, Mama. I miss Murray every day. That smooth Russian blue coat, those rageful eyes, that penchant for hiding in the radiator for days on end. Sigh. And now, for the first time ever on this podcast, my life partner, Jack Antonoff. Be nice, listeners. He's a gentle soul. Jack Antonoff, my partner, my love. I want to talk a little bit about your relationship to cats. What is your primary aversion to cats? The animal? Yeah. Well, the, the biggest thing um, is that they, I could die if I, I'm around too many cats. 
my allergies are so bad and it could cause a chest infection and I could actually die. So I, I can't be around cats. They, um, they make me very sick. And for that reason, I've never been able to bond with them. And so I think they're uh, gross. And I think that they're uninteresting and more importantly, uninterested. Even with uh, humans, I'm not interested in people that don't like me. That might be a difference between us. Yeah. Well, here's a question I have for you. You know, I grew up with hairless cats because my mom has allergies. So I've tried a bunch of times to introduce hairless cats into our home environment. The only thing worse than cats are hairless cats is a common thing. <laughs> but when I introduced you to a great hairless cat who I was who I was fostering for the weekend, you wouldn't let her foster her at me foster her at her house, which I totally understand. We, I fostered her at my mom's house. Your reaction to her was one of pure revulsion, and I believe you said you thought she had come from the dark side to taunt you. Yeah, I don't know. I just think that they um, they look like, uh, in the most basic, like biblical sense, evil in animal. When I was like, I desperately want a hairless cat. Will you spend time around one? Did you kind of, when you said yes, did you kind of secretly know that it would never work out? You were just kind yeah, of... Yeah, of course. I think being in a relationship is also about, you have to do things that make you happy so then your partner's happy. So, you know, you can't just say yes and then put yourself in a home with cats, in my case. Well, then, if you hate cats so much, why are you so obsessed with the musical cats? Well, first of all, the musical cats has nothing to do with the elements of cats that bother me. So I'm obviously not allergic to them. But also, the cats in the musical cats are unlike any cats, any real cats that I've ever met. Because they're jellical cats? Well, there's a lot of things. First of all, the... The musical Cats, it speaks to the suburbs. Cats the Musical speaks to the suburbs for a couple of reasons. It's really fun. It's really interesting. It's really exciting. And it's like like big entertainment in the way that like if you live in New Jersey and you go into the city to like when I was a kid and went to see falsettos, for example, some of it was lost on me and some of it I loved. Or like even like Phantom of the Opera, like some of it was scary. Like Cats is just like this like big, broad experience, like the circus. And I think that a lot of people connect with cats because they saw it, they loved it, and then they were demonized for loving it. And so then it makes you like, like contract to it even more. Is that why you decided to attend the premiere evening of the new reboot of Cats? Yeah, because I thought now that like I live in New York and, and people might see me a certain way, it would be a good way to like re- reclaim something, you know, to walk the red carpet at Cats proudly. <laughs> How do you feel about the New York Post item that was published that said Jack Antonoff spends $1,200 on Cats merchandise? But that just shows you how in the world we live in where anyone can write anything, humor dies. This is a much bigger conversation, not to get serious, but I was... Because you didn't spend no, $1,200. I spent like $80 on Cats merch, and I had a bag. It was and more was, than $80, because you got me like five pairs of ears. I was dancing around the after party, waving the bag, making my sister laugh by saying, this is what $1,200 of Cats merch looks like, which I thought was very funny, but now we live in a world where someone hears that, they print it, and then I just seem like an asshole. The next day on set, someone was like, your boyfriend bought you $1,200 of Cats merch, did he? I just think Cats is a musical for people who want to go to the theater and want to be wowed and don't want to be bored to potentially death. <laughs> but it has no it's plot. You recognize that. The jellical cats go to the trash pile, and then they stay at the trash pile. Yeah, but cats is more like, well, it's like, it's like vignettes. So, like, you meet old Deuteronomy. You meet um, <laughs> Mr. Mistopheles. You meet um, Mongo, Jerry, and Rumble Teaser. Like, so you, so it's, it's, like a, it's like a cabaret of meeting these different stories, and they all go to the jellical ball at the end. 
And they, one cat, who, who this time was played by Leona Lewis, who was great, goes to like live in eternity. But also the, the people that were there, um, Rosie O'Donnell was there. Well, she loves cats. Yeah, a lot of us. And I say us, me and Rosie, <laughs> of a certain type. Love. love cats. So you don't you don't think you and I will ever have a cat? I, I we will never have a cat. That would be something that that would be like me asking you to have. Um, I'm trying to think of something that could a kill you. A cup of poison. Yeah, a cup of poison. It's not a preference thing. It's a um, it's a survival tool. You did suggest that I get a small apartment to keep cats in. Because I don't. I want you to have the things you want, and we work hard enough. And you know, if if some people buy cars and watches which we don't maybe your luxury is you buy a very small space where you could have cats you'd have to shower in a third space (laughs) that has a separate in and a separate out before coming back to our apartment can you finish up this interview by telling me your favorite song from cats and just singing a couple of bars from it well my favorite melody is furthermore another thing amazing about cats is that the set you've never seen cats Oh. Get a life. The theater, as soon as you walk in, like to the left of your seat, the ceiling, everywhere, you're covered in uh, like a dump. But like, so there's like a bra the size of 10 of me. There's like, a, like, so you're the size of a cat. So automatically, just like we're reduced to all being cats. This sounds great. This sounds amazing. I can get you tickets. And I think we're going to end <laughs> it there. <laughs> if anybody wants cats tickets, just tweet me. Maybe you don't actually tweet at Jack for Cats tickets. Or maybe you should. Who knows? It'll be fun. We'll see what he does. And now for another celebrity cat. SNL's Michael Che joins us as Mia Farrow's cat, Basil. Um, hello? Is this thing on? Testing, testing? Oh, hi. I'm Basil Farrow, Mia Farrow's cat. If you're British, it's pronounced Basel. I like when you say that. I'm a Scottish fold cat, so I like to think that I'm not unattractive. Uh, what else? I'm on Twitter, at Basil Farrow. You can check me there. Oh, Anyway, this is about Mia. So Mia is damn amazing, needless to say. I mean, if you could visualize her empathy, it's like this enormous hand-knit blanket covered in cat hair, of course. She's had several cat companions, including a deaf cat named Malcolm back in Frank Sinatra days. You know, I often think, what a shame he could never hear Frank sing. Or maybe he was lucky, because that guy never shut up. (laughs) Anyway, Mia really shows how big-hearted cat ladies are. She's a sucker for a flat ear and a sweet meow. So lucky me, because Basil is living. Thank you to Michael Che for indulging us. Up next, Emma Forrest tickles our whiskers. Hello, my name is Emma Forrest and I am a novelist, memoirist, screenwriter and now director. So my soulmate cat was Perry, who I had for 16 years um, when I moved to New York and I was going kind of crazy the big sign that I was ready to make the leap to mental health was that the fantastic psychiatrist I was seeing allowed me to adopt a cat. Um, And I think this is probably often a common theme for 
pet owners is the idea that the first step to mental health is taking care of something um, and keeping it alive. And the more I kept Perry alive, the further the idea of not wanting to be alive myself receded until it was gone completely. And Perry was a 9-11 cat whose owner was killed. Um, and he ended up in a shelter downtown. And there was a long waiting list uh, to adopt him. And I just bugged them so much and called about three times a day. And they let me have him. And uh, so when I first got Perry, I just thought he was so beautiful. He looked like a pile of clean laundry. And it looked like maybe his father was a cat, but his mother was a bunny. Before I got Perry, I was probably that classic damaged person who thought simultaneously that they were the worst person in the world and the best person in the world. And when I got him, I just became more earthed and more grounded. My specialist subject today will be cats on film. <laughs> so. I think that cats on film are like the 12 tribes of Israel or like Hindu caste system. They all have a different place and purpose and role and social significance. It's really interesting when you put cats on screen with men. Um, if I can give you three examples, Inside Lewin Davis, the Coen Brothers movie, Mississippi Grind that my husband Ben Mendelssohn was in with a, a, a lovely cat, and The Long Goodbye, which has a fantastic extended opening sequence of Elliot Gould and a ginger cat. It signifies with men something broken and pathetic, whereas generally on screen, cats with women signify glamour, because with men, it's like, why are you loving something that archetypally does not love you back the same way, the way that a dog does? Um, whereas with women, they are the cat. That's the case in the symbolism they use uh, in Betty Blue with her, with uh, Beatrice Dahl and the cat. That's the case with the great 1930s psychological horror cat people. And there's a whole other strand where cats with women, the stray cat, um, the cat in Breakfast at Tiffany's, the cats in Grey Gardens, the cat in Clute um, with Jane Fonda are symbolic of scrappy survivors. It means something very different when you place it with actresses. And I think of the great screen love goddesses and their marriages and their affairs. And I think of those as their nine lives. Certainly when I think of, you know, Ava and Liz and all those great cat beauties, those marriages after marriages were, were lives lived and survived. Thank you, Emma. You're bloody brilliant, and you look like you stepped out of Singing in the Rain, a classic movie beauty with a classic movie mind. MailChimp, you've been complete angels to us this season. We could not truly have done this without you, and I'm going to continue, even when I am no longer sponsored, to encourage people to use MailChimp to send their email newsletters. We absolutely couldn't have started Lenny without MailChimp. We couldn't have done Women of the Hour without MailChimp. I feel like MailChimp's going to be a heavy part of getting me pregnant. Join me and the 14 million other people who use MailChimp to send their email newsletters. 
Grow your business on your terms. Do you hear me? Your terms. Tony Robbins would agree. Use MailChimp. It's time for another famous cat. God, I love this fucking episode. Here's the incomparable Megan Mullally as the family cat of Charlotte, Anne, and Emily Bronte. Meet, for the first time ever, Dorothy. Hello, yes. Uh, I'm here to discuss my family life, which is really quite ordinary, you know. Porridge with butter at daybreak, playing make-believe in the walled garden, chasing hedgehogs over the heath on fine days, and so on and so forth. The Brontes take great care with their cats. There are always at least four of us, walking abreast. And when one of us gets consumption and passes on, we are quickly replaced with another. Presently, I am residing with a ginger named Archie, a rather dull calico named Mrs. Chesterson, and, of course, Lord Cheever who claims to be 17 years old, but we all know he's exaggerating for the notoriety age brings. We are dressed in spotless, freshly starched linen pinafores each morning and encouraged to study the works of Wordsworth and Milton in our free time when we aren't chasing mice out of the larder. If I were inclined to boast, I might suggest that I myself have dashed off a line or two worth reading. Charlotte Bronte tends to disparage my work, given that I am, after all, only a cat. But she tends to be a bit dreary about everything. I mean, have you read Jane Eyre? Well, it's nearly tea time, and if I'm late, there shan't be any quince jam left for my biscuit. The family will be discussing funeral arrangements for Emily Jane who recently caught a chill and died because she refused her flannel nightcap. Let that be a lesson to us all. Thank you, Megan. And we regret to inform our listeners that Dorothy probably died in the mid-1800s, as did the Brontes. Back with us this and every week, all the way from the Gold Coast of Australia, we have queen, queen of the whole damn scene, Tessa Thompson, here to answer a question about, oh my god, cats! Here's a gut-wrenching question. Why don't my cats like me? They only like me when my mom isn't home or they can't find her. Aww. Uh... Like, how do you know what they feel or think? They, you just have a, they have a different dynamic with you and a different dynamic with your mom and a different dynamic with you guys together. That why? Of course, like that's a fine. Yeah, they like you. How are who like, are you to know what a cat thinks? Yeah, you don't know what that thing is thinking. Do you mean like you don't? It doesn't purr around you enough. Well, then maybe spend some like maybe you just need to do the things that it wants. You know, like experiment with what gets it purring or ask your mom ask your mom what she does you know to make it purr oh god this sounds like we like elaborately tricked you into like a full vagina lesson I feel terrible about it and it's all about cats it really is it's no pun (laughs) thank you Tessa for answering what is probably the best question we've ever gotten 
And finally, for our last celebrity cat, we bring you Brigitte Bardot's perfect feline. Sorry, had to do it. Bizu, as read by the multifaceted Zasha Mamet. Bonjour. What is this for? Uh, we regarded the cat ladies. We do not have this term in France, which is how you say uh, iconic, because Brigitte is perhaps the grand dame of cat ladies. She is famous for two things, being sexy and uh, taking care of the animals. And if you visit La Pinterest, you will see many, many pictures of her with creatures comme le chimpanzee, le horse, le dog. But of course, cats are the only animals who could begin to complement Brigitte's beauty, which smolders like the autumn sunset in uh, Avignon. If you have not been, you must go. Expensive, but how you say, um, worth it. We will meet there in a little cafe. Excuse me, Brigitte. She is now 80 years old, but you know how French women only grow more beautiful with time, like wines and cheeses. She beat us very, very well. Le pâté, la crème fraîche, and she serves it in très, très chic, bottleneck sweater. I've always felt the cat was very much Francaise, the dog American. <laughs> it makes sense. No? Thank you, Zasha. Bisou means kiss in French, and I'd love nothing more than to give you a bisou right now, with tongue, something we never got to do on television. This podcast is produced by Lenny Letter and Pineapple Street Media. Specifically, it is made by Jenna Weiss Berman, Liz Watson, Emily Becker, Barry Finkel, and Gabrielle Lewis. Special thanks to Ben Cooley, Max Linsky. <laughs> Jenna just sneezed and fucked the whole thing up. <laughs> Let's keep that in. Special thanks to Ben Cooley, Max Linsky, Henry Malofsky, and Jess Gross. Our music, as always, is by Andrew Dost. This episode and all our episodes are brought to you by the amazing MailChimp. Thank you this week to Kira Garcia, who wrote all those cat monologues, and to the people who read them. Zasha Mamet, Michael Che, Chris Abbott, and Megan Mullally. You're all angels and, most probably, jellical cats. Bye! That's what a cat sounds like, and that's what my producer Jenna sounds like laughing. I want milk! 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 Meow! Yay! We did it! Who would have known that the cat radio hour would come to life again?